Welcome to CYC Podcast Discussions on Child and Youth Care. I'm Wolfgang Vachon. Every day, we make dozens of ethical decisions. These range from how we will engage with young people, colleagues, family, friends, and those we don't know. And then there are the endless choices that we make that we may think about a little less, but nonetheless have crucial global and personal impact. These start from the very first moment we wake up and consider the clothes we wear, the toothpaste we use, the food we eat, the beverages we drink, and on and on and on throughout our day. These decisions matter because they impact us. They impact those around us and they impact those we have never met, including young people in different regions around the world. Today, we're speaking about one such choice. We're speaking about ethical fashion. Now, I'm someone who thinks about what I wear, and I like to um, look good, (laughs) as I define it. However, when I read my labels, um, much let's let's say much is revealed that uh, about what what looking good means beyond just myself. And my guest today, Sophia Yang, is going to talk about some of the consequences of the choices we make when we put on our clothes in the morning. Sophia Yang started a program called Threading Change, which is a youth-led not-for-profit focusing on the intersections of fashion and social justice. Sophia, thank you so much for joining us today, and I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Hey, Wolfgang. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk with you, talk about youth empowerment and all things ethical fashion. Awesome. Awesome. Um, Maybe we could start by having you introduce yourself and and who you are so people know you. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So hello to everyone listening. Um, <laughs> a pleasure to be here today. My name is Sophia. My Chinese name is Yang Yacheng, and I use she, her, her pronouns. And I'm currently on the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, otherwise known as Vancouver. Um, so I was born in northern China. I immigrated to Canada with my family when I was eight. And um, I grew up in Calgary and later moved to Vancouver to attend UBC, where I studied in the Natural Resources Conservation Program. So I've always been a uh, a climate advocate um, and also an activist at heart. For me, um, the switch to really working within ethical fashion was one that didn't come naturally at first. But I feel like as I'm someone that's very interested in fashion in general and someone that was also interested in having closer dialogues with my friends and family about my purchasing decisions, I realized that there's such this huge world that fashion intersects with climate, with gender, with racial injustice that I just had to learn more about. So this is why I started threading change and um, a part of why also I'm part of the rising youth program. Mm, nice. Nice. I, I like how you, you sort of um, highlight the, the, the steps to, you know, where, where you've, where you've, where you've landed at, the, at this particular moment with many, many more steps, I'm sure. Um, so what is Threading Change? I love the title, by the way. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So Threading Change is a play on word of spreading change. And it's really at the ethos of every individual fiber 
that's uh, in our clothing is interwoven with stories, with cult- cultural significance, with experiences, and that our current fast fashion ecosystem of produce, make, produce, make, toss, really glazes over the immense amount of power a piece of clothing can entail. And I say that with like, I'm getting chills because I remember I had this pair of Converse that I've had since I was in the eighth grade and I still have it. (laughs) It doesn't fit me anymore. It's super shoddy and gross looking. I've worn it to the skate park, Um, but I, I have it because it reminds me of all the shenanigans I got up to when I was younger. So part of starting change is really helping people understand better the implications of the clothing decisions, but also helping them realize how they can have a more personal connection to the store, to the clothing that's better for the planet, better for people and better for representation um, of all races because the fashion industry to this day is very selective of who gets a seat at the table, who is represented. And this has immense consequences, especially for people living in the global South. What, what does, what does that mean that, that there, the implications around, around race in fashion is not something that necessarily many of us make explicit those links, which, which threading change absolutely does. What is, what is the relationship between racism and fashion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. And um, part of the reason why I want to start threading change kind of, Going to the next point is that there's a lot of focus right now on fashion and climate and fashion sustainability. And that's not that's not a coincidence. A lot of that is greenwashing, if you can look past that. There is more talk about the apparel industry and also gender as well. One thing that's lacking is definitely diversity and meaningful inclusion in the industry. If you look at magazine catalogs, if you look at models, look at who's represented, it has a very Eurocentric beauty standard that's presented. White, blue eyes blonde hair. Um, And this is even the case for how representation um, of the ethical fashion discussion is going. And I really, um, I really have this put before my very eyes when I attended the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Madrid in 2019, December. Um, It's called COP25. And at the world's, at the stage, which was a one-year anniversary signing of the UN Sustainable Fashion Charter, they were supposed to have people up there that was representing, you know, like the global partnership of moving towards more sustainable fashion. Um, so all the countries in the world, there were 11 people up there. There was two uh, people of color. There was a gentleman from China and a woman from Turkey and everybody else was Caucasian and also mostly from Europe. And they were supposed to be representative of the sustainable fashion conversation around the world, which is very not true because there were no garment workers represented up there. So a lot of racialized women in the global south in countries such as Bangladesh, Honduras, Indo- uh, Indonesia, Cambodia, China, um, India, especially, and Sri Lanka. Um, it, 90% of those textile workers are women of color, making less than 10 cents an hour compared to someone that's the middleman making more than $25 an hour, for example. So a lot of racialized women are making their clothing. And on top of that, a lot of clothing and fashion trends have been inspired by Black culture, by Latinx culture, but not given proper credit. So when we're talking about intersectionality of fashion, is lots of people recognize the climate piece, and there's a bit more recognition on the gender piece, but that racial and diversity piece is still very much behind the scenes, and it's something we need to be bring more to the light. And why do you think that... I mean, the obvious question, all the answer is white supremacy and racism. Um, and, and that, and that may be, uh, you know, a, a sufficient answer. And I want to ask the 
questions. Maybe maybe that's that's not all there is. Why do you think that? You know, out of those eleven people on that stage at at COP twenty five, nine were white. Why do you think there isn't representation of the people who are actually making the clothing? Uh, you know, this is not a new conversation. People have been talking about this for you know at least a decade, and and some in some sectors far more than than that. Why is it still such a invisibilizing of, of people of color and women in particular? Mm-hmm. So this is a very complex question. Um, in my personal perspective, I think that the fashion industry is incredibly profit driven. And what's really happening is that a lot of the conversations about what's trending is dictated by people and positions of power in the global North, particularly um, in Europe and also North America. And I say that because, you know, if you look at some of the biggest fashion brands in the world, like over the course of the pandemic, brands like H&M and Zara have made over $10 billion in profit, whereas an average garment worker lost money, lost wages due to millions of canceled orders. That's not okay. And um, the creator of Zara, which is from the Inditex company, he is the sixth richest person in the world. So there's an extreme disparity of, of wealth distribution within the fashion industry, like a lot of other um, prop industries as well. But if you look at where these places are headquartered, it's you know typically like in Switzerland, in Spain, in European places. And the people, people in positions of power in those places are white. So then when it comes to a global conference, they're going to be the ones talking because they get the opportunity. And I want to bring... Um, Another thing to your attention that when I was at the conference, um, you know, there was a and a period and the gentleman from Nigeria raised his hand and he asked, thank you for your time. Um, I just want to ask because my wife works at a garment factory in Nigeria and she makes probably 0.001% compared to the, um, the driver that drives their completed textile designs that they created to the warehouse to then ship out. But she did all the sewing, the button making, the seamstressing, like putting the zipper on. How do you redistribute this wealth in a way that's fair? Because we're going to talk about financial sustainability too. And um, people up on stage suggested that um, the fact you can look into installer solar panels to just to summarize what was being said. And the entire audience was sitting there like, wow, that is such a, a backwards response. And what's worse is that, did you know that the largest importer of secondhand clothing waste is Ghana in Africa oh. at a place called Katamanto? So what's happening is that a lot of these clothing is being made for really, really cheap in places, mostly China and also Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and some in Honduras and South America. They then get shipped to Europe, to North America, Asia for, dist- for distribution, consumption, sales, where they generate the most profit also with models wearing them and photographers and more. But after the clothes is being done, after it goes to the landfill, because more than 90, 95% of clothing that goes to a landfill is actually recyclable, but they're instead improperly disposed of, where do they go? They get shipped to places like Philippines, like Ghana, where their landfills are being filled up at an alarming rate of all the clothes that we throw away. And what kind of message does that send to the, the people in these countries that they get these hand-me-downs, but to them, like that is clothing that tells a story and they don't understand why we're throwing all these things away. Do we even understand? Do we even know why we're buying all these things? Is it to keep up with trends? Is it because we actually want to? Is it because society tells us to? 
there's a lot of psychology with there as well. And when you think about the global supply chain of the fashion industry, no wonder emissions are so high. You have them being created in one place, shipped to another, and then shipped all the way back to dispose of. And the whole time, who is at the bottom level of the equation? Mostly people of color in the global south, and that is not okay. Absolutely, I'm. I'm. I'm just. I'm pausing because there, there's there's so much there, and um, yeah, and you and you just do such a beautiful job of of exposing the the multiple dimensions uh, of of all those of all those elements and you know one of the one of the questions i was thinking as i was preparing for this conversation we're having today is is why fashion and i and i and i think you you do a really good job of articulating why focus on fashion and you you do a, a wonderful job of inverting that and asking you know inviting our listeners to ask why why are we consuming fashion why do we want to you know i i happen to live quite close to uh, zara and many other stores on, on in that neighborhood were being closed and zara kept changing their window displays they were closed no one could go in mm-hmm. but while other other businesses were shutting down zara kept changing their window displays and and i and i thought it was it was fascinating to watch that and and while i was intrigued by that hearing you speak now it becomes more and more and more distressing Mm-hmm. One of the things that you talk about is something called the six F's, a feminist fossil fuel free fashion future. And I love that the six F's. Um, and I love the fact that you start with, with feminist. Could you, could you walk through those six F's and, and help us to understand the, the, the relevance and importance of each of those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So ever since we launched, we always made it very clear that Threading Change is an intersectional organization. And for those wondering, intersectionality is pretty much getting the root at how all the different issues within our world, whether it's social, political, economic, environmental, they're not disconnected. In fact, they're so interconnected and intertwined within each other that they're always affecting each other in tandem of what's going on. And you know, with this in mind, um, to us, the six Fs, our mission statement, a feminist. So that's really touching on the gender justice aspect of our organization. Fossil fuel free. So that's really touching on the environmental implications of the fashion industry. And this has a lot of different um, branches that go within it as well. Like I could talk all day about some of these different areas, but in brief, there is environmental pollution associated with that emissions. There is water waste pollution with toxic dyes and chemicals, microfiber plastics in the ocean from microfibers in our clothing. And there's also um, how some endangered old forests are being cut down to make um, clothing without those fibrous materials, such as um, myocell. And the free part is also referring to the labor injustice that's happening around the world. As I previously talked about how lots of women of color are making pennies compared to the dollars that other people are making, and that there's this system of people that are being trapped in this wasteful consumption pattern, whether it's consumers or even people like places like Ghana, where they know that this clothing is perfectly fine, and they know that in a way it's 
it's helping their economy because it's coming in and that's a second cent resale market. But you look at all the waste in their landfill that they didn't even contribute to because it's from all these other countries. And just imagine how that must feel like. And um, the fossil fuel free fashion future. The fashion future part we're talking about is really being innovative and thinking how we can take some of these problems and not just have them be problems, but have them become solutions. So threading change, we like to say we have a tri-impact model of working on research and policy, education, awareness, and also our global story map, which is kind of the innovation arm. So the six Fs, feminist, fossil fuel, fossil fuel free fashion future with a tongue twister, um, <laughs> really encapsulates our, our, our mission statement of being intersectional and embedding circularity. And it also touches on our three areas of work. So when we came up with it, we're like, yes, that's it. This is what we want. And a little secret I'll tell you is sometimes if you, if you say six Fs in a certain way, it kind of sounds like success. So nice. that's why we also chose it. <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, yeah, I was so delighted to to see that 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 framing. One of the, the things I'm particularly interested in and is is the role of of young people in well really on both sides of it as as consumers and as marketed to as well as um, people who are making the the clothing and I, I know that there has been a lot of discussion and and action over the past 20 years around uh, the exploitation of, of young people could you update us where where that is right now what is the state of of children and and youth and young people in the creation of clothing around the world Mm -hmm. for sure so actually it really pains me to to say this because what's happening right now is so real and i feel that you know um like I, I'm a woman of color, I'm Chinese Canadian, but I still come from a place of immense privilege, right? Um, and COVID has really affected people in so many different ways. And it's really affected those who are in poor countries in an immensely different way. When it comes to children within industry, um, there's a lot of you know children that are below the age of 18, could they start as the earliest 13, maybe even 12 in certain places, um, such as India or China that are, or even um, Bangladesh as well, that's already starting to learn how to sew or they're already well into it. Um, and they're in these factories, you know, probably because their parents, their grandmas, their mothers were also um, seamstresses. So that's just kind of the natural progression of their career. In some countries, that's all the jobs they ever known. And if they want to be going towards a different career path, they don't even know how to get there because there's no other type of educational programming available. And the reason why this is so ingrained in them is that, um, you know, there was this movie called True Cost that came out in 2015 and did a great job showcasing the breadth of different garment workers in Bangladesh and how difficult it is for them. A lot of these women, they leave for five, six months at a time to go to a garment factory. And because that factory, because it's in a city center, is far away from their hometown, to have them go back and forth every day to be seeing their kids is not possible. So they just stay in this factory for like six months at a time, sometimes sleeping on the floor. And they, they don't see their children. The children are being taken care of by other family members. So when they come back, all the children know is that, oh, my parents were away because she was in this factory making clothing. And then sometimes if the mothers don't have a choice of who's going to babysit, they have to bring the kid to the factory in which it's easier for the kid to then go into that um, industry as well. And the other thing that's happening right now is, um, as you may know, the Uyghur population in Northern China, 
Uh, currently, what's going on is what perhaps could be called one of the largest examples of the modern day slave trade, where they're currently being uh, forced to farm for cotton in the northern China region, a lot of which are your favorite brands are utilizing. So Nike, Adidas, H&M, for example, there's been activists such as from Clean Clothes Campaign, you know, the Remake Our World um, nonprofit that's really called for government action to legislate against that. There were petitions out to try and have, you know, products made up part of China be banned into the U.S. And while there was some initial, um, you know, uptake and there were consumer interest in a subject matter, um, it didn't really land anywhere when it comes to actual policy and legislation. And this is another huge problem is there is a severe lack of legislation in these garment making countries against child labor and against inequitable pay and against all these toxic pollutions. But there's also an extreme amount of lack of legislation in countries that are doing most of the clothing importing, such as U.S. and Canada, from textiles waste diversion to extended producer responsibility policy to also where the products are coming from. So from a policy stance, there is very little on fashion when it comes to some of the other industries, such as climate. And I really, really hope that threading change can kind of be part of that conversation solution to help change that. What does what does change look like? Because I, because I think that yes, we can each individually make choices about about where we shop. If you know, we can um, whether we buy new, whether we buy fast fashion, whether we buy other clothes. If we keep wearing our clothes, if we you know save our Converse from grade eight, and all those choices that that we make, and and. And as you have, have written about and spoken about elsewhere, you know that that it's not it's not about personal choices alone, and 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 perhaps it even becomes um, uh, invisibilizes the larger issue when we when we leave it up to just a consumer. Uh, choice model where you know okay well I can just shop somewhere else it it doesn't actually address the larger systemic you know global um, multi um, intersectional elements of what what's what's going on so how how do we start to address these things how do we start to change these things um, what does that look like in practice do you think mm-hmm yeah, it's a good question and is one of my favorite ones to talk about because mm-hmm. I also don't have all the answers. Um, I'm really in this space to try and find more answers to this question. But I I would say that it's interesting because a lot of these things gets like I hear about them, but when I'm at a conference, it's really like put into perspective for me. So I'll tell you the story of um, right before COVID, I attended this conference in Vancouver. It was called the Globe Forum. Um, Delphi Group hosted part of their clean capitalism programming. They do it like every other year in Toronto, every other, other year in Vancouver. So I was at this conference with a youth delegate, and um, I was at one of the roundtables for textiles um, in the global advanced um, programming. And there was a, a person in that group that was saying that, you know, a lot of how we make purchasing decisions will really then in turn relate to like what's trending and what how the direction that industry should go. So it's important for us to make good purchasing decisions. And I kind of sat there and I was like, this doesn't really sit right with me. So I said, hang on. So are you suggesting that the onus of, you know, the fashion industry and all its problems and how incredibly um, 
corrupt it is, is dependent on consumer choices. And they're like, yes, precisely. And I said, I think that's wrong to place all the onus on the individual. I think it's very wrong. I think that's kind of like the previous climate change conversation where, you know, it's like take shorter showers, um, ride your bike to work, um, have a usable water bottle, which are all great individual things to do. But then when you hear the statistics that came out in 2018 by The Guardian of that 19 of the largest oil and gas companies are responsible for up to 70%, maybe a little bit more, give or take a little bit less, of the global uh, carbon or CO2 emissions globally, that puts into perspective that, you know, a lot of individual action is important, but we're not taking it at the systems change level. How is anything really going to change? Especially when industry are the ones that are so profitable and they're just taking, taking, taking where Mother Earth is not, it's not, these resources are not finite and are not, yeah, they're finite. And that is kind of a similar vein when it comes to the fashion industry. Like, yes, individual consumption patterns is very important. It plays a huge role, especially if it's in a collective. But we're not challenging the system of how you were able to, you know, contract out this T-shirt that's really supposed to be $100 for the fiber sourcing, whether it's, especially if it's organic cotton, to the labeling, to the production, to the shipping, to the retail, to the model. But then you sell it for $9. The true cost of that is where does who actually is the one at loss? It's the garment worker. It's probably her child that doesn't get to spend half a year with her mom. It's the people in Ghana where they have to take all this garbage that we're being disposed of, right? It's it's the husband that has to have, lose his work in turn because he has to babysit, just as an example in that one situation. So there is industry transformation happening in the fashion industry. Is it happening slowly? I think COVID has heightened people's awareness about the topic, but I worry that right after things, quote unquote, go back to normal, we will forget about all these problems. And I can just see a lot of consumption patterns rising post-COVID because I can go out and shop. Now I can go to a festival. Now I can go to this event. And what do we love to show off once we go back into something? Our clothing, right? Because that tells a story. So I think that you know, talking to your neighbors, family members about this is very important. But a lot of the work we're doing at Threading Change behind the scenes and in front of the scenes is being at roundtables with organizations, with industry, talking about what young people want. And this is really the ethos of Threading Change is that we are a youth-led organization. And we wanted to do this because we see that a lot of the times young people are discluded or excluded from the conversation about fashion. How many times has the young people being consulted about a new collection or the future of fashion they want to see? A lot of um, Generation Z folks don't actually care about what is, like, they care about what's trending, but they can thrift it. They might do that instead of completely buying new. And that data, although it's being researched, is not co-created or co-designed with young people in mind. So then why don't we get a seat at the table? And that's what we're really trying to do at Threading Change, is connect young people with industry, with these opportunities and, uh, um, and events to be able to showcase how we're feeling about the industry. Mm. Sophia. And you, you fire me up. I'm like, I'm excited <laughs> talking to you. I'm like, oh, stuff's going to change. Mm. Um, change. <laughs> it's going to change. It is changing. Oh, oh, you're, 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 yes. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, I would be, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, link this back. We, we came into contact through, um, uh, through Rising Youth and, and uh, CYC podcast. You know, while we focus on on youth and and youth uh, topics related to to young people and particularly young people, system involved and and things like that, um, you know, and and I, um, I think 
Um, one of the things I love about the partnership with Rising Youth is it brings in some different voices and different perspectives. And so um, as we move towards closing our, our conversation today, um, what was, how did you come into contact with uh, Rising Youth and, and taking it global and, and what the, the funding that you received from them, how did that support the, your project? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited to answer this question because I, I just want to tell everybody listening, rising, rising youth and taking it global are amazing. Just amazing. Like what, what you guys are doing is just, I, I can't even put into words. And I say that as a young person, you're running a nonprofit fundraising and getting grants is so difficult and it's so taxing. And I knew that going in, but um, I have a few friends that have gotten a grant successfully from Rising Youth and they had nothing but shining positive reviews like go through Rising Youth. They're super supportive. Um, They really highlight Black Indigenous youth as well. Um, Just a great organization. So I applied and Rising Youth is officially the first grant that we got. Um, So with the, yeah, so thank you so much. So with the Rising Youth money, we were able to kick off um, our website, you know, as you know, with an organization, a website, a good website is very important, especially in the fashion industry. Like you mm. want it to look nice, right? So there's that. And your we website got, looks great, by the way. It looks great. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Threatingchange.org. And um, with the a Rising Youth Grant, we also paid for Zoom Premium, which is very important because we do something called Texel Talks. And this is the main um, project I applied to with Rising Youth. So Textile Talks essentially is our uh, webinar series where we bring together, you know, fashion designers, policy makers, people working within the fashion design entrepreneur and also um, climate and fashion space and also consumers to talk every month about um, ways in which, you know, consumers and industry can collaborate together to change the fashion conversation. We've done two episodes to date and we had representatives from Mexico, Sri Lanka, India attend. Um, and, and also Canada, um, with a local panelist from Vancouver as well. And it was amazing because when we did our icebreaker activity, we had people from over 20 countries participate. So it is, wow. it is a, like a emerging global initiative. And I'll quickly say that, um, we actually have a, a series of events coming up in April, um, as part of fashion revolution week, we're doing a month of events called our clothes busters campaign, which is kind of like a homage to ghostbusters, which is <laughs> busting and demystifying popular myths within the clothing industry such as the belief that if you donate your clothes, it's all going to be sold at a thrift store. No, it's actually mostly going to the landfill in places like Ghana. And we actually got some folks from Ghana who started one of the or, uh, nonprofits called Dead White, Dead White Man's Clothes to come and speak. So we're so excited. Nice. And a lot of this is thanks to the support and money that Rising Youth provided us. Um, anyway, we have a whole suite of events happening. It's all on our website, threatingchange.org. If you're interested, check it out. We have conversations there with like filmmakers, with the founder of Fashion Revolution, with the Vancouver Shapers Hub. It's going to be amazing. And yeah, thank you, Rising Youth, for the possibility. Absolutely. I, I will um, we'll post all of these on the um cyc.org website so that people can link through there or go to threatingchange.org. Um, have you been able to leverage any of the, the rising youth funds into uh, more fundraising yet? Yes, we have. Um, nice. so this, is a, this is taking out of place in a good time, this conversation with Wolfgang, because we just got approved for a partnership with the Van City Credit Union. Nice. So, yeah. And this just happened a couple of days ago. Oh, um, congratulations. Were, 
yeah, thank you. And some of the, you know, the stuff, the uh, staff hours and volunteer time that we used to write that grant, because we put a lot of work into it, was also through the Rising Youth Grant. Um, so really excited to partner with Van City for the upcoming Close Busters campaign. Hopefully that goes really well and we can build out like a future partnership. Um, it just feels like things are falling into place with hard work, of course, but um, very, very happy and fortunate to be here. Yeah. Awesome. Sophia Yang, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I don't know how you find the time because it sounds like you are busy, 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 busy. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for, for finding the, the time today to, to have this conversation. Um, and, and I, 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 on a personal note, I, you know, true confessions here. I absolutely was looking forward to going back into some stores and buying some clothing. Without a doubt, that was one of the things mm -hmm. on my list of things I was looking forward to doing. And, <laughs> yeah. and this conversation has really um, given me the opportunity to, to pause once again and to, uh, to consider that, that, that choice. And so, um, so thank you for that. Because I, because I, think, um, I think, as you say, a lot of us uh, you know, are thinking what will post pandemic life be and yeah we want to go to festivals we want to go out we want to hang with our friends mm -hmm. we want to go shopping we want to buy new things we you know there people keep talking about all this pent up money for you know a certain elite sector of the world that 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 has mm -hmm. been able to profit um or save during this this pandemic and uh yeah so uh i i, I thank you for that because that that was really important and and thank you for having this conversation and for all your amazing work um and I look forward to following Threading Change in the, the months and years to come. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was great. Um, happy that I could, I could help with that. And try clothing swap. Like the, the first thing when we can go back to normal, quote unquote, um, I'm going to host a clothing swap with my friends for sure. Because I think that's a good way to try out new things while also being social. Um, yeah. and we might even try to do some of those in-person events, um, in Vancouver, um, once we're able to, there's a lot of possibilities. Um, the conversation has happened. It started, but the change making, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to happen. <laughs> that's a great idea. Closing swaps. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. a great idea. All right. Thank you, Sophia. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You as well. Thank you. Bye. Bye.